previously on Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. For me, the reason why the fascination was, oh, this is Ohio. This is an Ohio case, and this is somebody my age. So I was able to kind of uh, have a quick fascination to it. I used to watch Unsolved Mysteries and, and, believe it or not, read true crime when I was a young kid. And that was like the first time I remember something, a crime of significance in my home state and the victim being somebody that was my age. Yeah, well, I mean, Frank Dennis is always going to be on the suspect list uh, simply because we know he's capable of murder. Um, Dennis was the guy who murdered uh, Joe Cop, was his name? You know what's scary? Um, and they'll forever be entwined in my mind. Thank God at least one of them has been solved. But Jacob Wetterling is abducted on, on a Sunday evening. And then that same week, Sunday to Friday, Friday, Amy Mihaljevic is abducted. Yeah, and it was just such a weird thing. And I know that there there was some speculation at the time that maybe they were, that there was this traveling uh, man that was going town to town and going to abduct children. We don't want to scare our children and think that every adult is a, is a dangerous stranger, but we do want them to, we want to teach them that it's okay to say no to some adults and it's okay to be actually rude to a stranger if you need to be. 35 FBI agents were assigned to the Mihaljevic case. 100,000 man hours had been logged and practically everyone involved in the investigation were clinging to hope that Amy would be found alive. Uh, I can only say that uh, there were stab wounds to the left side of the neck. Can you say how many? No, I can't say that. Any uh, possibility of sexual I can't say that at this time. Well, it, uh, it certainly isn't what we were all and every one of you two were hoping for. There's uh, frustration because the uh, murder hasn't been found. There's a lot of anger over that, too. Bill, I'll never find, uh, to some degree, there, that's a good way to put it, some, some degree. Justice. I would find justice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it, justice. That's a good, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. And all of a sudden it goes awry and they end up killing the child. That's typically how these things go. And I don't think this person's any different. I really believe the person that did this didn't take her with the plan on killing her. I am Bill Huffman and welcome to episode nine of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. On this week's episode, we will look back on some of the theories that have come up throughout this podcast and in other publications and decipher which ones make the most sense. Could this case be simpler than it appears? Or is it this unsolved mystery that will linger forever for the family and the people of Northeast Ohio? We will also speak with a woman who believes she received phone calls similar to Amy's right around the same time that Amy went missing. Unfortunately, in a situation such as this case, we will only get the answers that we seek once this perpetrator is finally held responsible. October 27th, 2018 marks 29 years since Amy's abduction rocked the small town of Bay Village in Cleveland, Ohio, and for the most part changed the way we were parented and taught in school. After Amy was abducted, fear gripped every community. And with Halloween right around the corner, 
it really struck fear in parents. By the time Halloween did roll around, the mysterious phone caller ruse had been revealed to the public and the composite sketch had been released. There was a true sense of fear amongst the parents in my neighborhood, which was only about four miles from where Amy was last seen, and they made sure that we had a chaperone when we went trick-or-treating that year. The lack of knowing whom the perpetrator was really kept all of Northeast Ohio on edge. Looking back, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't cancel trick-or-treating that year. I believe if that were to happen today, the community would either cancel the event or move it to the daytime. I remember talking with one of my friends recently, and he told me a story about somebody asking why he kept such a close eye on his children, and he gave him a two-word answer, Amy Mahalovic. This is an example of how a case that remains unsolved and unexplained can still cause fear amongst the people who live in these communities. The goal of this podcast has been to tell Amy's story and remind people that her case has never been solved. There have been suspects named in certain publications that have steered the public opinion to think they know who committed this crime. This was one of the most important things that Special Agent Phil Torsney wanted to say when we met a few months back. Just because something's in the media doesn't mean it's correct. And we have information that's uh, the general public doesn't know and the media doesn't know and it's, it's in-house here, uh, you know, at, in law enforcement agencies, the FBI and the prosecutor's office. And uh, um, that's why we take information and we don't want anybody to assume based on prior, um, prior publications or media things that have been put out there that this case, uh, that, that this thing has been resolved because somebody said it's been resolved or thinks it was this person or that person. We want the information because all that's ongoing investigation. And uh, we could take some new information, not focus on uh, certain areas and take new information and solve the case that way. I will admit that Torsney doesn't officially rule out any particular person in that statement, but I could tell that he wanted people to know that they still want to get any information that they may not know from the public. This case is active and still being investigated, and with the new DNA technology, such as GEDmatch, that has been used to solve 15 previously unsolved crimes, there is hope that there could be resolution. There isn't a statue of limitations on murder because the crime is so heinous, but also because technology is always improving and will eventually be able to solve any case where genetic material may have been found. We were on the phone today with scientists, myself and, and some of the detectives, scientists from various organizations, in an effort to take what we have as far as science goes in this case and forensics goes in this case and move forward to, uh, to something that might help us make an identification or a resolution. That's ongoing. It's going to be ongoing for the next, until we figure this thing out, uh, if it takes years or maybe a couple days or a couple hours. But that's been a process that, that we've kept up with, I believe, as DNA has progressed, and we continue to keep up with that and make submissions, inquiries, uh, in the hopes that uh, science will help us resolve this case. 
I have received a number of emails and comments from people about who they think killed Amy Mihaljevic. And those people may very well be right, but circumstantial evidence is something you can take to trial. But I'm confident that these investigators want concrete evidence. As previously mentioned, eyewitness testimony is shaky at best, and with Amy's case going on 29 years, those witnesses may not have the same memories. You see, the mind is a crazy thing, and memories have a way of evolving through the years. Your mind sometimes plays the game telephone on itself. You used to think one thing when you were young, and now you have a different perspective. Not on purpose, but maybe it's just from growing older. The bottom line is the investigation is ongoing and will continue until the person responsible for this crime is behind bars. Chief Spetzel, who has worked this investigation since the beginning, will eventually have to retire. Uh, well, I've got 32 and a half years now. I can retire any day, okay. but I have to retire in June of 2020. So somewhere between now and June of you know, two years from today, basically, uh, actually almost two years to the day from today, I have to retire. The time to solve this case is now. I believe with the docuseries that is coming out in December on the investigation discovery, and with this podcast, it will only keep Amy's case in the minds of the public. This person has lived free for 29 years, and the Mahalovic family and the communities are left to wonder why. I know through my lifetime this case has been a part of me, and all I am is just a guy that was Amy's age and lived in the neighboring suburb. There is one goal, and that is to bring the person responsible for this nightmare to justice. I know there are members of the listening audience that see this case as something that will forever haunt them. In fact, I hear from new people every day that this case never left them, and all they want is to see a resolution. There have been a number of other emails that I received that discuss situations that happened to them back in 1989. The person I'm about to speak with, Angela, had her own experience with a mysterious phone caller, and this is what she had to say about the case. I just felt it was my neighbor, and of course, <laughs> yes, I have dug into him very deeply and found out lots of interesting things. Okay, so we'll call him the writer. What is it about him that is so interesting that you find so compelling as him being the possible person that called you? Okay, um, well, we're going to back up to when I was 10 and he lived across the street from me. Um, he had kids my, my age, my sister's age, and my brother's age. So, you know, we played with them immediately right off the bat. Uh, every time we would go over there and ask, you know, knock on the door, and the dad would come to the door, and we'd say, hi, is Jenny and Kim home? Can they play? Uh, he would say nothing to us. He'd shut the door in our face and then go get his kids, and they would come outside and play with us. Same thing when we would call the house. Hi, is Jenny and Kim there? He'd put the phone down. You'd hear him get his kids, and that was that. It was never nothing normal. You know, like, hi, kids, how are you? Uh, come in, why don't you guys wait, or I'll get them for you. How you doing? Nothing that normal parents would do. Of course, it makes sense now, <laughs> you know, 29 years later, Again. standoffish. It makes oh. sense why he was standoffish. Okay. So what actually brought you into the whole Amy Mihaljevic case? Because I think you mentioned before that you weren't even, it wasn't until 2017. Right. It was, um, well, obviously, like us all, you know, 
who grew up in that time around Northeast Ohio. Of course, that case was, you know, something that never left our minds. And every time I would see her billboard or just anything that had to do with her, you know, I would always think to myself, okay, um, I need to look into my neighbor and I need to look into her story. And then, you know, it was, I just never did it. You know, time, life went on and I would always forget, you know. But um, what made me was the, in February of 2017, there was a, for Fox 8, they did a preview for the Amy Mahalovic case. And I remember I was cleaning, doing normal daily mom stuff. And I, they just did a preview. This week we'll be talking about the Amy Mahalovic case. And I just stopped dead in my tracks that day. And I went and looked up her case. I seen that she received a phone call um, from a man. And I don't remember that, you know, part of it from when I was a kid. So... That was like news to me. So I just read up on her case. I looked up my neighbor and found him on Facebook. And lo and behold, this man is very, very creepy. And he writes murder mystery novels. And it's all downhill from there, Bill. <laughs> so in your opinion, you feel like you've stumbled upon, if maybe not the killer in this particular case, but maybe somebody that is deeply connected to something that's not on the up and up. Absolutely. Um, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I'm a spiritual person, and I feel that there was a reason that I looked into the case that day, and I feel that there is a reason that I have found all of this information out about him. Um, I want to make it known that I'm not trying to make anything fit into a mold so that he could be the killer. I personally... Everything I would look up and find, I'm trying to prove to myself that there was no way that this could be him. And instead of it pointing away from him, it constantly kept pointing towards him. And then some. Now, you just recently met with the Bay Village police. Yes, I did yesterday. Okay. And um, you just basically told him the story? I told him the whole story. I told him, I showed him pictures, I showed him some stories that this um, author writes. I showed, I told him how I confronted him on Facebook. I let him read all that, I let him see everything. I didn't hold anything back. So he took notes, and I know that this person is definitely gonna get looked into now. And they were, rece they were receptive? Oh, absolutely. He was a very nice guy. And you so know, didn't leave, didn't say anything that, you know, Anything extra, of course, I was hoping to get, but very receptive, took lots of notes. Um, yeah, he, he was a very nice guy. Now, in regards to the conversation you were having last week with somebody online, um, you had mentioned that that person also went and spoke with the police. Now, were they, you had mentioned they were a witness? Okay. Um, yeah, it was a post that was on the Secret Bay Village and a friend of mine um, who's connected with this case, you know, pointed it out to me. And I, of course, hurry up and uh, private messaged her on Facebook and told her I wanted to talk because she said that on the post that her and her mother were inside uh, Baskin Robbins having ice cream. And this would be, I believe, before Amy got out of school. And there was a very sketchy man in there having ice cream that kept staring out the window. Um, and almost like he was looking for someone. So 
you know, they automatically, you know, thought something was up with this man. And I guess back then they did go to the Bay Village police and say that they did about this man. And they were interviewed by, I think, Channel 5 News. Um, and then it just came out again, you know, because it was on that Facebook post. So I got to talking with her and I, knowing, you know, not knowing I wasn't supposed to do this, uh, sent her pictures of the person that I suspect and her and her mother uh, say that that is who they saw. And then I sent a message saying, well, you know what? I think I should not have, you know, showed you just one person. I, sh I wanted to show you a bunch of different people. But after you said that you talked to the Bay Village detective, I kind of panicked. And I didn't want to lose my opportunity in showing you at least a person that I had in mind. So I just sent a bunch of pictures and she said I did not taint her um, vision of him that her, she showed her mother, her mother stepped over and she, they very well wholeheartedly believe that that is who they saw. Everything about him and they said that the person that they saw looked just like the sketch. Now, does this suspect of yours <clears throat> Does he fit the composite? Absolutely. Not the one with, the, the one that stood out to me when I actually did, you know, back in 2017, look up the sketch. It made my heart drop because it, in the one sketch with the hair kind of, you know, parted. And I know like to most people, it's like a typical hairstyle, but not to me. Because I, I look at that part and it's it's crazy because when I, you know, saw my neighbor back in 89, he always did that weird part. And even back then it was not in style. And I remember thinking, what's wrong with his hair? Why does he wear his hair like that? And you know what, he still does. So when I saw the parted hair sketch, I, I knew, I knew, I'm like, well, <laughs> no one's gonna tell me any differently. And granted, I know that the sketch looks like a lot of people, I get that. But when you're coming at it from an angle like I am, um, someone who thinks they know who called them and was already suspicious of this person. And then you look and see that they have that parted hairline in that sketch. That's going to, it's going to raise eyebrows for you. Now, we aren't going to name any names because this person has not been <clears throat> charged with any crime or, or has... questioned. I want to add that the Bay Village or nobody ever questioned him yet but there is no records of him committing any crimes in the past. So, you know, he hasn't actually, you know, he's been under, under the radar. Absolutely, but under the radar. And um, let's just say that it does turn out to be him. Uh, and I'm not trying to say yay for me, but nobody would have ever known about him. And if it, and I never would have, you know, felt anything about him if I did not get that phone call when I was supposed to be at school. So that, you know, is very significant to me. Uh, unless there was two separate men calling 10-year-old girls, you know, in October and November of 1989, then there's just no way that this is not connected. Yeah, the 1980s were kind of the um, ground zero for the phone calls. So, well, And that may be, but, you know, he used my mother as bait as well. He changed his... Uh, his ruse, because obviously it was already known what had been said to Amy, but you know, he told me that it would, let me back up. So my brother and sister had gone to school and then my mother, she had owned a shop in Parma Heights back then. So she had to leave 
me home to go open that shop. And, you know, it wasn't until maybe like 9.30 or something, maybe 10 o'clock in the morning, that she left and she had to go open her shop. So it would be like 15, 20 minutes after that that I got the phone call. So, I mean, obviously, whoever called me had a front row seat to my life. It's not like some random kidnapper. It's not someone targeting 10-year-old girls. It just so happened that, you know, I he had a front row seat to my life, and he was selling insurance out of his home at that time. So he doesn't have an alibi, and that gives him a perfect reason to have information about other kids, you know. He sold all different kinds of insurance from July of 82 till November of 1989. Talk about ironic. <laughs> he stopped selling insurance in November of 1989, and I'm pretty positive that. And it was November of 1989 that I got my call. I've always felt November. I think that when I, when he did call me, I, you know, tried to call my mom at the shop. I hung up on him. I tried to call my mom at her work. She did not answer. So then I really panicked and thought that he had my mother and then I called 911, and back in 89, the Parma Police Station was right around the corner from where I lived. And they were there within seconds. And I think that seeing all those cop cars in my driveway scared the living shit out of whoever called me. And I don't think they ever made a phone call since. Really? That's my theory. I know we all have one, but yeah. So, in his books that you've come across... Um, what are some of the similarities between you know the cases that he or the cases he talks about in the books and Amy's case or you know okay. somebody watching you by chance? Okay, well we're gonna back up a little bit again because I don't think I got into all that uh, while looking up my neighbor on Facebook and finding him. Like I said, I see that he writes murder mystery novels. Um, he's very dark and creepy. He writes, he has a, another face, he has a personal Facebook page, but then he has another one that's just for his writing. And that is where he likes to post all kinds of weird uh, memes. So here, okay, this is not a meme, but this is him. This is one of the first things I ran across, and this was on his private Facebook page. This is within the first two days of me looking into him. Promoting his Murder Me Twice novel, he writes, the perfect Christmas present for mom, dad, brother, sister, that weird aunt, the crazy uncle, the neighbor watching you, in other words, everyone. So probably to everybody that's listening right now, they're thinking, oh, no big deal, so what? But no, not to me, because whoever called me had to be watching me, had to, had to know what was going on every day in my life. So that made my stomach drop. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things actually. 
To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. So here's some of the memes. Have you ever looked at someone and thought, yep, you have a person locked in your basement. You are going to love some of your characters because they are you or some facet of you, and you are going to hate some of your characters for the same reason. We'll touch on that in a second. I hug people that I hate so that I know how big to dig the hole in my backyard. If at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you ever tried. Here is his profile meme on his writing wall. Why I write. Because kidnapping people and forcing them to act out my interesting make-believe worlds is technically illegal. Very strange. Halloween special. Bodies buried. $5. Really deep. $10. <laughs> Halloween is a great time to hide a body on the front porch. Just saying. You know you're a writer when you've planned the perfect murder at least once. And then it says in parentheses. For a book, of course link that he provides on his Facebook, I won't name it, but he has tons, like probably a hundred, roughly a hundred short stories. And this person that I'm referring to um, started teaching in 1990. He had his provisional teaching license from 74 to 1990, and then finally got his actual teaching license, so was able to teach. So he was an English teacher. So in this story, Justice for All, he talks about um, being this really cool English teacher that everybody likes and everybody looks up to. And then there's the student who accuses him of rape and it ends up going to court and it's like televised and everything like it's a big deal, this big court case. And, you know, it, he ends up getting away with it with, you know, he ends up being found not guilty. And then the kicker is at the end of the, the story that his lawyer says to him, you can't keep doing this. I can't keep getting you out of trouble. You have to stop raping your students. Um, basically, he got away with, you know, raping. So I guess there was lots of students that he raped. And to me, I don't care if you're a story writer or not. There's like a fine line between inappropriate and you should not be writing stories about sex with students, raping students, anything of the nature. If you want to be a creepy writer... Feel free, but you know, you have to remember that you were a teacher and people are reading these. Why no one would question his stories is beyond me. Another one is the last person you see. And this story has probably 50 similarities to Amy's case, just random ones. Um, you know, that he talks about, I like to use a knife on my victims. I stare into their eyes, blue eyes today. I watch the life leaving those eyes. The last look of shock when the person knows his life is ending. I will continue to kill until the thrill is gone. I'm the last person you see. He talks about a psycho, the most dangerous kind of psychopath, a killer without a motive. In this story, he talks about stabbing in the left side of the neck twice, blunt force trauma to the back of the head, dumping a body in a field. Um, he talks about, and I'm not positive, it's not in this story, but in, because I, like I said, there's lots of stories. So in one of his stories, he talks a lot about um, tricking the police, uh, going two hour or going an hour away from home to commit a crime where nobody knows you. And then that's a story where he talks about dumping a body in a field. He talks about a missing blanket. He talks about 
um, gold or tan fibers. He talks about a lot. Now, just to play devil's advocate, yes, don't a lot do. of true crime writers, fiction writers, base a lot of their stuff off of, you know, actual crimes? Okay, well, I'm going to answer that very clearly for you, Bill. James Renner, everybody knows James Renner, went to this man's house for me in August of 2017. And he questioned him, which is more than I could say for anybody else, because I know the police have not questioned him yet. Long story short, James asks him. He just goes to his house unannounced. He asks him if you can ask him some questions about his stories. The neighbor, you know, replies, of course. He asks if he researches any of his story ideas or if this is all his own thoughts and own thinking in his stories. Well, he says, no, these, he does not research his story ideas and that these are his own thoughts. And James says, well, I don't know his any... Whenever we'll ever talk to you about the Amy Mahalovic case because you have a, quite a bit of similarities in your stories that have to do with the Amy Mahalovic case. Has anyone questioned you about Amy Mahalovic? And he said no. And, he's, and then James said, did you ever used to call any young girls on the telephone in the late 80s? And this person replied with, I don't remember. So that's, that's that. That was the end. I would love to know if he told his wife that someone came to his house asking questions. Wouldn't you, Bill? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely not something that I would be uh, flippant about, that's for sure. Right. But if you were innocent, you would tell, can you believe this? Someone can't have the nerve to come to my house and ask me these ignorant things. And no, nope, I don't think so. Now, over the years, since you started getting into this case, you've also become friends with some of Amy's friends? Well, just one, Christy. I reached out to her um, when I was, you know, doing some digging on my neighbor because, of course, I wasn't getting no answers back from the FBI. And us women know how that could be very nerve-wracking, and we just can't let anything go. So we just have to keep digging and digging. Um, and we're good at it. I, I want to add that. <laughs> so I reached out to Christy on Facebook, and, yes, her and I have become good friends since then. We both share an interest in, you know, finding justice for Amy. Um, she doesn't necessarily have the same beliefs or thoughts that I do, which is fine. Um, she, you know, we're just, yeah, we're good friends. Interesting. So you have, uh, you have basically picked your guy. I have picked my guy because I'm coming at it from a different angle. You know, I was called, and obviously who called me, you know, it's, I mean, how many coincidences are too many, Bill? I mean, he looks like the sketch. He has no alibi. He writes murder mystery stories that have to do with lots of random clues that are in her case. I'm looking at a story right now called Jesse's Story, and it says, I lost my blanket one night. I mean... There's just so many things. I'm not going to get into every single detail on here, but we would be here for two weeks. There are lots of similarities, lots of coincidences, and I, I don't understand how that could be possible. Not to mention a lot of people have, that have you know, seen the kidnapper or, or eyewitnesses have said that this person looks just like who they saw. 
Wasn't there someone else that you had spoken to about this case or about this suspect uh, from Michigan? Yes, that's a very crazy story. So I would say in March, April, or sorry, April, May of 2017, of course, I'm not hearing anything back from the FBI and I'm thinking, uh, what is going on? I gave them a lot of information because I gave them as much information as I had. And that was a lot at that time. And I kept giving them more as I found more. But I decided to look up um, psychic mediums who work on cold cases uh, for, with law enforcement. And I came across a woman named Christy Robinette. And I Facebook messaged her. I gave her a brief description of why I'm, I'm seeking her help. I sent a couple pictures along with the story and asked her if she'd be willing to help. She got right back to me and she said, it was actually March 31st. It says, give me a couple days. I promise I'll get back to you. Just a crazy schedule. What's odd is I had an attempted kidnapping when I was young and he is the closest description I've ever seen. His old pick, as in I was breathless. I also don't believe in coincidences. Um, this is how I found out about the Oakland County child killers. So I know People who are, you know, more invested into this case and longer have speculated that there could possibly be a connection. And that is how I found out about the Oakland County child killer. Um, she was, you know, a young girl in the late 70s growing up in Oakland County, Michigan. And she was almost kidnapped from a mall from a man trying to take her picture and lead, lead her outside while she actually ended up getting away. And that's that. So I decided to look in to see if my old neighbor ever lived in Michigan. And I'm not even kidding you. I tracked him to Michigan and by process of elimination, it would have to be 75 through 82 that he lived there because I want to add that this man, he moved quite a bit and he bought homes. So he lived, you know, I lived in Parma. So he lived in Parma and he moved his family of five every four to five years. He was not upgrading and he was not renting these homes. He wasn't purchasing them. I don't know who in the hell wants to up, you know, upload five people and move them every four to five years. I, I know I would not. So everybody can make their own opinion on that. And you know, lo and behold, I did uh, track him to Trenton, Michigan. And like I said, by process of elimination, it would have to be in the late seventies, mid to late seventies. So again, another coincidence. I know people hear psychic medium and they think, oh, whatever, but no, you know, it's just odd that I contact a psychic medium for help. And in return, she tells me she was almost kidnapped and that he is the closest that she has ever seen. And we've, we've had conversations about it. And then, you know, actually she had a thing September of 2017 and it was called a vision of murder and I actually went down to Michigan and she was picking a cold case um, that had to do, you know, just a cold case that was not solved. And she was holding this like conference thing, this private conference. And we were going to discuss this cold case and see if we can come up with anything. Um, I was hoping she would pick my case, but she didn't. But still, the, the person that she picked, their date of birth was Amy's date of kidnapping and the date of her death was Amy's birthday. Exact years and everything. No, I'm sorry, for the birthday, 
for the day she was killed was not Amy's. It was Amy, not the year, but it was the birthday. So tell me how you guys would feel. <laughs> so back that up again. The coincidence is what? Christy Robinette did not pick Amy's cold case like I was hoping she would. Okay. She picked a different case from like her, you know, local town. Her date of birth was Amy's date of kidnapping. So the day she was born was October 27th of 1989. The day that she was killed was Amy's birthday. Different year, but she was killed on that day. So those two dates matched up and I was just like, what the, what the hell is this all about? <laughs> it's crazy. It's very, very crazy. So do you feel like you're all alone in this situation? I do. I do. You know, I have family that, you know, is not all my family. Most of my family is very supportive, but, you know, someone close to me, you know, thinks it's silly that I'm doing this and, you know, I'm, I'm just following my heart. You know, if it's nothing bad can come out of it. I'm not scared by confronting this person. You know, I'm an adult now and they're old and I'm feisty. I'm not scared. <laughs> but well, yeah, you know, like everybody has their own theory. Everybody has their own suspect. I'm coming at it from, you know, a different angle just because of my own personal experience. And I just hope that my lead wasn't dismissed or overlooked because I was in Parma. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't think that the location should eliminate you as, you know, being a possible person that was targeted because of the fact that, I mean, you're still within, you know, 10 miles of Bay Village. Oh, right. And just drove there yesterday to see the detective, and it literally took me 20 minutes to get there. So, right. you know, back then, of course, us kids felt like our own city was the whole world, and it felt like, you know, oh, that won't happen to me because that was so far away, but in reality... <laughs> It's a hop, skip, and a jump away. This is a fact. This is, uh, growing up in Rocky River, I know all too well that proximity to this case is something that makes it stick with you for, you know, a lifetime. Right. And it's not something that you just can... I mean, you can put to the back burner and move on for a while, but eventually it comes back to you, you know, right. whether it's a news story that you just come across or some, you know, ex producer decides to make a podcast about it. But, um, whatever the, uh, whatever attention this case gets, you know, and whatever means it takes to get the killer caught, I feel like everybody at the end of the day wants the same thing and that's right. just justice for the family, closure for the family and for the community. That's right. And you know what? Like, I don't feel bad for targeting the person that I am accusing. If he was a stand-up guy and he just looked like the sketch, then by all means, I wouldn't do and be vocal about my suspicion. But, I mean, here's this man who writes about raping students and you know, sex with students and very inappropriate things. And that right there gives me the right to question him and point the finger at him all I want. Right. In my eyes. I don't feel bad at all. It's sickening because he had his own kids and it's just sick. 
Right you know, on. in James Runner's book, you know, how he showed um, the one, how he tracked down the girl who gave, you know, the, who was an eyewitness back then. Mm-hmm. And he tracked her down and showed her a picture of Billy Strunak and how she kind of freaked out and according to his book and, and said, oh my God, that looks just like him. Oh my God. Well, the funny thing is that my person and him look like they are twins. I'm not even saying that lightly. They look like they are twin brothers. So I could see why she felt that way. So either my neighbor is a dead lookalike to the person that committed this crime, or <laughs> he's the un- most unluckiest son of a bitch in the world because <laughs> right. how many things need to line up? Uh, I want to read one more thing. And this girl reached sure. out to me yesterday after almost two years <laughs> of, I guess I emailed her after I saw this on a uh, crime forum called Web Sleuths, and it was an Amy forum. Okay. Um, It's her, and she writes, I have a question for all of you more experienced at this. I ran across this case randomly today, and I am left feeling extremely uneasy because of the reports of the odd phone calls made to other girls. In the late 80s, I was an early elementary student just a few miles from there. I received multiple creepy phone calls from, from a man attempting to get info about me so he could tell me stories in which I was the main character. Luckily, my mom was nearby, heard this happening, and hung up on him. He once called and didn't really say much. When I became uncomfortable and attempted to pass him off to my mom, he weirdly insisted I was the one he wanted to speak to. Creeped out, I hung up on him. He called back and became agitated when my mom picked up yelling, where did you go? I have no idea if this information is at all relevant or useful, and I don't want to clog up any lines if it isn't. But I'm just sitting here feeling nauseated. That man was so creepy. I always assumed it was a random creeper, but the multiple phone calls sounded very targeted, even at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the person I'm speaking of writes murder mystery stories and freely, openly talks about how he's always wanted to be a writer. And that's obvious because of all the stories he, he's written since, you know, he's retired. Um, but, you know, when I came across it, I was, again, my heart started pounding and I didn't, you know, like no one else would think anything about that, this post, but to me, it, it speaks volumes. Right. Um, you know, I, I just, and I've been, you know, she emailed me yesterday and we've been, you know, going back and forth. It's, it's just crazy how, how many things come out of the woodwork. And I'm hoping that from me coming forward about my phone call that maybe, you know, some of the other girls that got the phone calls will contact Bill and, you know, even off the record, share something, anything helps. You know, I feel like we're all connected somehow and the dots are there if we just can connect them, but, you know, we have to come forward. I know that you probably are obviously talked to the police already, but, you know, we're trying to get new information out there and let's face it, they don't share a whole hell of a lot. Angela is a perfect example of how a case that goes unresolved for as long as Amy's will cause people to begin their own form of investigation. Some people, like James Renner, are comfortable naming people because they truly believe they know who is responsible for killing Amy. The Amy Mahalovic case is truly complex and multi-layered, and other than investigators, James Renner knows just how complicated it really is. Uh, I've never seen any other case quite like this, where there are so many 
likely suspects. When I met with Chief Spetzel, he also emphasized the size of this case and the complexities that go along with having to bring someone new in. But Phil being on board has been great because there's things that we want to do and did want to do that we couldn't because of manpower. And because of his familiarity with the case, he can just jump right in, go out and do interviews, follow up on leads without a whole lot of education on my part. If I was to bring you in, you're a new detective, I'm going to bring you into this case, it would take me months to get you update on where we are, what we're doing, why this and why not that. He can just jump right in. And so um, the, the, the city is also helping to pay for him to be here, but all that money is, is starting to run out now. So eventually, um, you know, he's probably not going to be able to continue. But having said that, I will, I will tell you this about Phil, and I'll tell you this about any other detective that has worked this case. Mm -hmm. If something comes up that looks very promising, that, you know, it's just a matter of putting manpower to it, these guys will come back and work for free. I'd come back. I'll probably be retired by then, but they'd all come back and work for free. That is how uh, personally involved they become in this case to the point where, you know, you don't have to pay me. Just tell me what I got to do. I'll be there. I'll help you. That's the mentality of all the detectives that have ever worked this case because they got, you know, you're talking about a 10-year-old girl. An innocent 10-year-old girl from a very safe suburb disappears and is found dead, and it just shocks and rocks the community, right? And but it also affects everybody personally because everybody's got, most people got kids and yourself, you were that age. I can only imagine how your parents felt. Um, so you start to take it personally like, you know, this guy, we don't know if he's done any other crimes. We don't know if he will do any more crimes. But one thing we know we want to do is identify him, arrest him, and get him off the streets, put some closure to the Mahalovic family. They deserve that and not allow this person to perpetrate anymore. So they're, they're willing to come back and do that for free. They've all told me that. One of the things the state of Ohio and the city of Bay Village have provided grant money for is that of an electronic database, one that is able to track all the leads that came in from the day that Amy went missing up until the present day. I know it was 1989, but did you guys keep records of the tips that came in during the first few days of Amy's disappearance? No, that's a great question because initially most of the leads uh, that were generated by the public were lookalike leads. Okay. So we literally got hundreds a day of lookalike leads. So everything was documented. Everything was eventually put into a database. And those lookalikes range from, you know, I was driving down I-71 and I saw a male in a car and there was a young female in the car with them and that's all they got. It was a red car. So, you know, you obviously, some of these you, you eliminate because there's nothing you can go by. And others are more specific. Uh, you know, this individual looks like him. And then from there, of course, you can go back and establish alibis. So there were hundreds and hundreds of those types of leads. And again, at the same time, you're looking at uh, your typical investigative techniques. You're looking, okay, who would know this child to be able to walk up to him in the middle of the day at a shopping center and walk away with her? There's got to be some familiarity. So you look at people that might be close to Amy. You start doing that, of course. And then you start looking at, since the, it involved Margaret, the mother, being given a gift, is there somebody who knew that Margaret got a promotion or a job change that you know, would have resulted in a gift being purchased? So all that's going on at the same time. What somewhat muddies the waters in this case, and, and although it was inevitable, there's not much you can do about it, was the lookalike tips that came in ate up a lot of resources and time. 
So you have to look at those because like uh, you alluded to, Mark Maholovic said, you don't know which one of those tips is not the right one. You, you just don't know until you follow it through. So we took everything um, and ran with it. And it, it was overwhelming, despite the fact that, you know, we're a small department. We had 24 police officers at the time, but we did obtain the resources of the FBI. We had over 50 agents working in this case at one time. So even with all those resources, it was still a little bit overwhelming to work that case. And, and from the beginning, because of the volume of calls, I literally uh, was new then, of course, and one of my jobs was to answer phones. And this is the back in the day when you had the little phones with the push buttons that would light up when a call came in. Mm -hmm. Those lights never went off. You would literally finish a call, hit the next button, and take another tip. And it just went on and on and on. And that's a great thing because that means people are involved and they're engaged and they're looking at it. Uh, and then the flyers went national, so you're getting calls from outside the area. Uh, and all that, like you said, has to be sifted through and gone through to make sure. And we have looked at those things several times. This case has never been a cold case. We've always looked at it, and that's one of the areas we've done. Let's go back and look through all the, the tips that we really didn't follow up on, make sure we're not missing something. And the reason we are, we have, we're conducting an electronic database now of everything, because we don't know what tip back in 1989 will become important in 2018 because we got new information. So all that has to be retained, all of it has to be searchable in some format uh, so that if another tip comes up, we can search our database and try to find connections. Technology is always evolving, but does that mean every old case will be solved? Probably not. But it does give families such as the Mahalovics a sense of hope that one day, maybe, that phone will ring. We have a good relationship, yeah, very good relationship, but it's been like this from day one. Solve the case, come to me. Yeah. I mean, to call them every week. Well, what's happening this week? What's happening? Yeah. What'd you do? What'd you eat for breakfast? I mean, that's just... They know their job. That's... They're doing it. They, they know their job and they're doing it. And um, they're good at it and they've kept it open and they aren't, haven't let it go. And, um, There's so and many. He's uh... And he's, he's got his, you know, he's personally invested in this too because the day that she was missing he gave a presentation to her, her class. class that about stranger danger Is that so, something i mean he is personally invested in this too so i mean really this really fortunate that he's and not fortunate for him but for him to have seen this whole case from beginning to present and he could have retired i mean he could be out of there the chief emphasized to me how important it was to have closure for the family and for the community. You know, this is the case, again, just like Phil Torsney and many of the others, if somebody asked me to come back and work on it because of my knowledge and experience with it, absolutely. I'd do it. Yeah, no problem. If you can pay me, great. If you can't, oh well. That's the way it is. <laughs> Mark and Margaret Mihaljevic divorced within the year of Amy's body being found. But the reason wasn't strictly related to Amy. And according to Mark, there were marriage problems well before Amy went missing. Mark is in his early 70s now, and he lives a quiet life with his wife, Georgette, and he has a great relationship with his son, Jason. Unfortunately, Amy's mother, Margaret, passed away nearly 11 years after Amy passed away on September 29, 2001, from what many have called a broken heart. 
In Margaret's press conferences after Amy was found, you could see that this tragedy shouldn't happen to anyone and that the tragedy had taken a major toll on her. No one can fully understand what she went through and it's a shame that she won't be around for the day that Amy's killer is finally brought to justice. Thank you to my guests this week for sharing their time and knowledge on the case with the listeners. I should also thank the listeners for their emails that they have been sending about the case. You never know what you know until you put it out there. So thank you again to Amy's family, the authorities, and the listeners for making these episodes possible. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, please help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left on whokilledamymahalovic.com. Any amount is appreciated, and it helps keep this podcast running. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, that will also be helpful and help get Amy's story the coverage it deserves. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information. The FBI is also offering a reward up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Renee Mihaljevic. So again, anyone with information concerning this case, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic? Stay tuned for next week's episode, episode 10 of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. Thank you again for listening, and be safe. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. 